This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. Today is our third episode discussing the book that changed Tolkien's life forever, The Hobbit. In episode one, we spent most of our discussion talking about Tolkien, the man, and the world in which he lived. In episode two, we talked about Tolkien's secondary world and the concept behind it and uh, the Silmarillion. We read through Bilbo's adventures in the Misty Mountains, his <laughs> meeting with Gollum, and his discovery of the magical ring. And today, we will journey onward all the way to the next mountain, the Lonely Mountain, and we'll meet its chief resident, Smaug. Smaug. Everyone has to love Smaug. Tolkien always loved dragons since he was a little boy, and really... I haven't really appreciated them as much as I should, and I probably wouldn't have if it weren't for Tolkien. He's made me look at them entirely differently. <laughs> well, on a personal level, he used dragons psychologically to deal with difficulties throughout his whole life. When his mother died and, and he had to live with a cruel relative, he looked for them. Uh, he did the same thing after he moved to boarding school and later on in the war. So, in a sense, dragons were an old friend and they were a way to conceptualize and uh, manage a danger beyond what he knew how to manage. Which is really interesting that he was able to to psychoanalyze himself, I guess. I don't know. I, I don't know how I would flesh that out. But speaking of flesh it out, when he got to it, adulthood he wanted to flesh out his vision for a dragon in story form and so he did what Tolkien always did (laughs) he went to mythology back to what he loved and what he studied and he found a couple that he wanted to draw from and of course if you're a student of British literature or if you've ever taken senior English here in the United States you might recognize a little bit of Beowulf and Smaug, but actually the more influential of the antecedents that went into Smaug's creation was this other dragon called Fafnir, a a treasure hoarding dragon from a Norse epic. 
Tolkien said this about dragons, and I, I love to quote Tolkien, but he said this, Of course I, in my timid body, did not wish to have them in the neighborhood, <laughs> but the world that contained even the imagination of Famnir was richer and more beautiful at whatever cost of peril. So, like Smaug, Favnir had this giant hoard of gold that was his main preoccupation, and Smaug, like Favnir, was a talking dragon and liked to talk to the hero, and so that's what we see in The Hobbit. Bilbo uh, will talk to Smaug and will engage in this you know, hoarding dragon, uh, but in case you're wondering, from the Norse story, the hero's name was Sigurd. Ah. <laughs> Well, before we get into all that and the many other antagonists Bilbo meets before he gets to Smaug, we need to make mention of Tolkien's very famous relationship with another writer of fantasy, C.S. Lewis, and their little group that they called the Inklings. Yeah, and you know, before you mentioned that to me, I didn't know a lot. I actually never even heard of the Inklings, to be honest. But those two really are an interesting pair. Tolkien and Lewis, they met, not surprisingly, at a faculty meeting in 1926 at Oxford. Uh, Lewis, of course ironically describes Tolkien and let me quote him he says this he was a smooth pale fluent little chap no harm in him only needs a smack or so (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Lewis was already well established in the English faculty so here's the upstart coming in uh, I guess in Tolkien but Tolkien wasn't in the prestigious fields either he was studying the history of languages and linguistics, which wasn't near as prestigious as some of the other uh, colleges. And uh, he didn't even like literature, ironically. He didn't like anything past the medieval period. So in other words, uh, Lewis, from the very beginning, was more had more prestige. He was more recognized, and their whole lives was the more celebrated of the two men. So what drew them together? Well, they both really did have this love of old myths and literary histories and stories that nobody else in their world really cared about. And so they could talk about those things. But honestly, as the relationship developed, they learned that they had a lot more on a personal level uh, in common. Uh, Neither one of them liked technology. They were leery of it to the point that neither one of them owned a car. (laughs) But they both ignored current politics They'd both served and survived, obviously, World War I. But interesting, interestingly enough, let me say that correctly, both of them had lost their parents uh, early in childhood. We might have mentioned this in episode one, but Tolkien uh, now famously started his first little literary club they called TCBS uh, when he was in high school before the war. And he and his friends would get together and read original compositions to each other while drinking tea. <laughs> If you've seen the movie, Tolkien, that's the part of Tolkien's life that the movie features. But as an adult, Tolkien started a more famous little club or a literary society for the same purpose. This one was called The Inklings and consisted of several male friends doing basically the same thing. They would get together in Oxford in a pub called The Eagle and Child. I'd like to visit that one day. (laughs) Yes. It was in the back of the pub in a little room called The Rabbit Room that all the creative magic happened. And the men met there every Tuesday morning from 1939 to 1962. That's not a short period of time. That's a commitment. I mean, <laughs> they would bring whatever chapters they had written that week from the books they were writing, uh, not academic writing, but but fun stories, and they would read them out loud to uh, to each other. And 
the original purpose was just to have a creative outlet for male bonding, if I can use that word, you know, friendship making. Uh, it was a reason to get together, and they would smoke and drink beer and discuss the stories. And <laughs> Tolkien uh, called uh, Lewis Jack, and Lewis called him Tollers. But obviously, uh, out of it came products for uh, its two most famous members the, uh, that, that were highly and ultimately monetized. And, I'd say so. And I will add, Lewis and Tolkien weren't the only Inklings. They are just the two we all know. You'd hate to be the other members. Of like, dang it, how come I can't get my book published? <laughs> but these two really were such a funny pair. Uh, they remind me of, you know, maybe the Muppet Cranky Old Man or something like that. And, and the things that they said about each other it was a mixed bag. Some of it was sweet, but some of it really wasn't. Tolkien later on in life uh, said this, and this is sweet. He said this, The unpayable debt that I owe to Lewis was not influence as it is normally understood, but sheer encouragement. He was for a long time my only audience. Only from him did I ever get the idea that my stuff could be more than a private hobby. But for his interest and unceasing eagerness for more, I should never have brought the Lord of the Rings to conclusion. That's so sweet. But then he goes on to admit, and and I won't read the whole quote, but he doesn't like the Narnia books (laughs) at all. And then he goes on to say that Lewis never really liked The Lord of the Rings. Wow, that's so amazing. The two biggest books to come out of this. I know. I guess I'll quote um, Tolkien because the way he says stuff to me is funny. He said that Narnia was, quote, outside the range of my sympathy as much as my world was outside his. Isn't that strange? I like both of the worlds. I don't know (laughs) why they have to be in conflict, but... uh, Four years after Lewis's death, Tolkien again says this. To tell the truth, Jack never really liked hobbits very much. Then again, Lewis would complain about Tolkien, and he said this. Tollers was a perfectionist and never keen to accept advice. His standard of self-criticism was high, and the mere suggestion of publication usually set him upon a revision. (laughs) They do sound like the cranky old men from the Muppet I Show. I know, they do. Well, uh, their lives, for better or for worse, were intricately linked, and, and their futures and fates and their legacies really are connected. The most famous moment of their relationship comes down to a single night, September 19, 1931. The men were walking the grounds of the university, and they were talking And the conversation went into spiritual things. Lewis was an absolute atheist, and he could not grasp how any intelligent person would embrace Christian theology. Uh, He especially had a hard time with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, Tolkien, and we've already talked about this, was a devout Catholic, absolutely committed and thoroughly well-grounded in theology. And they respected each other. And so this conversation, you know, about these two contrasting different worldviews went on and on until three o'clock in the morning. And a lot of what was said is actually documented. Lewis famously said that night, Tolk to Tolkien, myths are lies. But Tolkien more famously rebutted him and he said, no, myths are not lies. 
and he spent the night illustrating for Lewis in a convincing way and can really did change his mind that the ancient pagan mythology that he had spent his entire life studying actually illustrated and supported key points of Christianity and was absolutely in full harmony with Christian ideals. Now, for those of us who, you know, we don't know that much about ancient mythology, and we might recognize just a few examples here or there, we might recognize, because, and if you want to read this, this is all really thoroughly documented on the internet and so many different sources, but he illustrates this, among other things, through Beowulf, uh, to make his point. Because for Tolkien, Mythology, and he, Natoka's not the only person who believed this. Obviously, lots of psychologists and mythologists have said this, but he really believed that all the truth of human experience is passed down from generation to generation, often in these stories. He said this We, and I'm going to quote him, the moderns are like dwarves perched on the shoulders of giants, the ancients. The ideas of superior good, honor, chivalry. These were very essential to the mythology that Tolkien and Lewis were really familiar with. But Tolkien's going to argue that they're actually Christian virtues fleshed out in story form in a way for people to understand. Tolkien argues that myths, if you look at all of them, reflect a fragment of true light. And at the end of the night, he concluded with this other very famous line. He says this, The story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others, with the tremendous difference that it really happened. Well, of course, from there, uh, Lewis converted and became probably one of the most famous apologists of Christianity in the modern era. Which is so ironic, because mm-hmm. Tolkien never did, and he was the first, I guess, theologian. Right. Well, just as Lewis launched Tolkien's career as a fantasy writer, Tolkien launched Lewis's career as an apologist. Irony. And, and we all know that uh, Lewis's fame, at least in this day, has far exceeded Tolkien's. Yes, and I think that really, over time, got to Tolkien. And I don't know this, but from what I've read, that seems to me to be a little bit of the root of what, you know, created the, the the misunderstanding that ended up developing over the years. Tolkien wrote in 1964 that their relationship had soured, and he says this, We saw less and less of one another after the influence of Charles Williams, and still less after his very strange marriage. A woman got in the way. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of sad, though. Lewis was seven years younger than Tolkien, but he died 10 years before t- Tolkien did. And when Lewis died, which, by the way, was the exact same day that JFK was shot, Tolkien wrote to his daughter uh, how he felt about it. And he said that, and I quote, Jack's passing feels like an axe blow near the roots. So after all the estrangement, all the, quote, souring, you know, there was a bond. Well, of, of course, and all that rivalry likely felt petty at that point in his life. And anyway, uh, I know that was a tangent, but because that relationship is so famous, it felt wrong to really not address it and talk about it. Oh, absolutely. And I have found it really fascinating, especially when you see how important platonic relationships are to Tolkien and how embedded they are in his writings. 
Uh, the relationship, of course, between Frodo and Sam and the Lord of the Rings is the most famous. But even here in The Hobbit, you know, this is about groups of men bonding. We see Bilbo bond with the dwarves and then Gandalf in his own way. There's this reoccurring theme of loyalty really almost in every single chapter of the whole book. Anyway, uh, we left off last week in our discussion with chapter five, and today we'll try to make it all the way to chapter 15. And what we're going to see in these chapters is this obvious pattern, almost a redundancy. In every single chapter, Bilbo and the dwarves will come up with a challenge, uh, and they'll almost get taken down, but we'll watch Bilbo over this process slowly grow up and eventually morph into a leader and eventually our hero. In chapter six, Bilbo just isn't very noble at all. He's quite helpless. He's horrified. He hangs on for dear life while being carried away by eagles and tries to be avoided eat, being eaten by wolves, but he even can't even do that by himself. In chapter 7, we meet uh, what today we will call a shapeshifter, but Tolkien describes him as a skin changer. Well, when I read his description at first, I thought the book was saying that he shed his skin or something, but it really means he can turn into a bear whenever he wants to. Um, He's what we call a superhero, or at least maybe an X-Man. Exactly. And here, Tolkien is a precursor to Marvel, But, of course, Bjorn, although he does surface at the end of the book as an important figure, is not our hero. Our emerging hero is Bilbo. But here again, at least at this point, Bilbo is small and unimpressive in almost every way clearly out of his league. What we are supposed to be noticing, though, is in terms of his character development Here, at the end of this chapter with Bjorn, Gandalf leaves. Up to this point, it's clear that Gandalf is the leader. He's the one that's been guiding the group. And basically, everybody else is hapless. There's this band of travelers that can't stay out of trouble. And Gandalf uh, is going to lead the way. But now, the little band of misfits are on their own. (laughs) Mm. And of course, uh, this is where a child would really identify with Bilbo, even though Bilbo was a (laughs) 50-year-old man-child. You kind of lose sight of that. He's just a hobbit. Right. Well, in a sense, Bilbo has to grow up now, and he has to do it fast, ready or not. I mean, what you do when um, your life coach and your guide or your guardian walks away and uh, leaves you to face life by yourself. And uh, every child or young adult has had to face this at some time. And by definition, it's horrifying and it can be a life-altering experience. Exactly. And that is the very definition of coming of age. Even when you're 50. <laughs> Even when you're 50. Uh, the Hobbit story really kind of is this in-between stage of life that you're supposed to see. And I know the book is an allegorical token, but it is obviously archetypal. And those of you, or us, I guess, not definitely you, Gary, who love psychology, I know have a lot to see and talk about what he's illustrating here in these chapters. And I can even see it in my own life. I can vividly remember to this point, I know I've talked about it many times that I was raised in Brazil, but what I haven't mentioned is what, how I got to the United States. When I was 17, I graduated from high school, and 
my parents brought me back to the United States to attend college. Admittedly, that's an amazing privilege for any young adult on planet Earth, but the United States was a foreign country to me. They gave me a car I'd never driven before. They taught me how to do laundry, embarrassingly, something I'd never (laughs) done before. And Now I was at this public laundromat, and they dropped me off at a university in a town and in a state that I had never been before in my entire life. And I felt every bit like Bilbo as I watched them drive away. I could imagine how he felt when he watched Gandalf walk off. I will never forget those feelings. I was horrified, and... I might as well have been dropped off in Mirkwood Forest getting ready to see some gigantic spiders. That's how I felt. But just like Bilbo, I wanted to rise to the challenge. I didn't want to disappoint my parents. I didn't want to disappoint myself. But I really had no idea if I could or what I would do. And like Bilbo and like all of us, What happened to me after that day was a collection of ups and downs and wins and losses. And I experienced my own hiccups. Uh, I'll just admit right now, I flipped a car pretty much a few weeks after I got it. (laughs) But, you know, you hope that you make it through. True. And and although my story isn't quite that dramatic, uh, going to a big university after growing up in Lawson, a town of 1,500 people, uh, it pretty much felt exactly the same way. And Uh, That story of growing up and facing the adult world is replicated in the life of every child in every culture in every era. Uh, Although it looks differently from culture to culture, spiders and forests and eagles and wolves are uh, great illustrations of how these growing up experiences feel. And they're kind of cross-cultural. Everyone can can understand that. That's why they're archetypal. I I guess so. (laughs) And I like the idea that Tolkien threw in uh, this little concept of the dream dinner, uh, where every once in a while you just go to your happy place in your mind and have a dream dinner <laughs> of what life used to be like in that comfortable place in your hobbit hole, whatever that is for you. I mean, for me, it was my old bedroom jamming out with my first electric guitar. I can only imagine. Did you have a mullet? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to plead the Fifth Amendment on that. All right. Well, here we're in the forest with spiders, and Bilbo will begin to have victories, and we're going to start to see his confidence go up, and we're going to see that he becomes a leader. He rescues the dwarves, go Bilbo, all by himself from the spiders, and then again in Chapter 9, he rescues them again from the wood elves. Well, I also want to point out that Bilbo learns how to use the tools at his disposal, Uh, and this is a very important developmental concept. Bilbo is little. He will never be a wizard or an elf. He won't even be a dwarf. And he doesn't ever one time bemoan uh, what he isn't. Bilbo accepts himself and he takes on this identity as a burglar, although he's obviously the most <laughs> honest I know, it's like ever. he doesn't even know what that is. <laughs> right. But he hones the things about him that uh, are personal strengths and he gets better at those things. And he's quiet so he can go around undetected. He has this little knife that he affectionately names Sting. <laughs> And he learns how to use that. That doesn't sound very threatening, does it? Um, Anyway, uh, these are all things that all people who develop healthy self-esteem eventually learn to do. And uh, I have to identify and maximize my personal strengths and stop looking at others or trying to be like them. Uh, Bibble can never be a wizard or a dwarf, but a hobbit 
has its own advantages, as all the readers in the book soon discover. I know. When I read these books, I always think about, hmm, I wish, I wonder which creature I would want to be. I definitely (laughs) don't want to be a dwarf. (laughs) But anyway, uh, and here we see uh, Tolkien or Bilbo clinging to certain moral values. And that's why the claim has been made against Tolkien that these books are Christian morality tales and maybe in a sense they can't but not be because he will obviously write out of his own sense of morality. But in the other, you know, in a, a more, I guess, obvious way, they're just not. There is no God in Middle Earth. There are no churches. No one prays. You'd think if you were ever going to pray, you might do it in a dark tunnel by yourself. <laughs> With the spiders. <laughs> but that's not even a joke in the book. They don't, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. This type of thinking doesn't exist in Middle Earth. The primary supernatural element is magic. Uh, but another supernatural element, and it's kind of understated, but if you look for it, you'll see it, is this idea of prophecy. And this is what I mean when people say there is this element of Uh, religious thinking in the book, the idea that there is a guiding hand of providence that's steering the course of events ever so subtly. You see this primarily through the character of Gandalf. He'll revisit that, obviously, over and over and over again. Uh, But it also surfaces a little here with Bilbo in The Dwarves. Having said that, the most important thing I think that we're supposed to be noticing in all of these chapters when after Bilbo leaves the Shire up until he gets to the dragon is this idea of building one's own self-reliance. What do you do when it becomes very obvious? No one is coming to rescue. No one is coming. Yeah. (laughs) In the case of the wood elves, um, you stuff all of your friends into barrels and hop on a barrel yourself and float down a river in the middle of the night. You know, that sounds fun when you say it, but in the book, (laughs) it really did seem uncomfortable. I can imagine it was not good. (laughs) But it did the trick. Uh, And then once you get to the bottom of the river, you got to make friends out of uh, the people that help you get out of the barrels. But... Anyway, by the time we get to chapter 10, Bilbo gets the dwarves out of the barrels, and there is no doubt that at this point in the story, no one's contesting the leadership. Bilbo's the man. (laughs) Let's read that part. Well, here we are, said Thorne, and I suppose we ought to thank our stars and Mr. Baggins. I am sure he has a right to expect it, though I wish he could have arranged a more comfortable journey. Still, all very much at your service once more, Mr. Baggins. No doubt we shall feel properly grateful when we are fed and recovered. In the meanwhile, what next? I suggest Lake Town, said Bilbo. What else is there? Notice the reversal of leadership roles. Bilbo is answering the question about what next. Go, Bilbo! Later on, we're going to see he starts to think of himself as a leader. Gary, let's read that part towards the end of chapter 10. Then, as he had said, the dwarves' good feeling towards the little hobbit grew stronger every day. There were no more groans or grumbles. They drank to his health, and they patted him on the back, and they made a great fuss of him, which was just as well, for he was not feeling particularly cheerful. He had not forgotten the look of the mountain, nor the thought of the dragon, and he had, besides, a shocking cold. For three days he sneezed and coughed, and he could not go out, and even after that, his speeches at banquets were limited to, Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank 
you very much. It's my best much. cold voice. <laughs> yeah. Well, besides the cold, uh, you know, it's really out of character for Bilbo not to enjoy all the eating and drinking. But he's thinking and he's worried because now as a leader, he has to think about what's coming next. We know that is Smaug, our favorite villain. Bilbo has to face the dragon. Isn't that a metaphor? I've even heard it before. <laughs> face the dragon. Oh, it's as old as time. And I think it's really important to um, emphasize that when Tolkien wrote this book, he was deliberately writing a book for children. Sometimes I forget that, but mm. it is true. It's unusual that a book for children only has old people in it. I mean, you've got Gandalf and the dwarves are old. And even though Bilbo seems the youngest, he's not a child at all. Haven't we said he's 50? <laughs> More than once. But from a psychological perspective, this book pretty much is an attempt uh, to illustrate the importance of rites of passage when we grow up and building the ability to face the chaos of your world. I mean, a dragon is nothing if not the primary historical archetype for chaos. Uh, That's what dragons do. They destroy. They wreak havoc. And if you think of every rite of passage as a, a door to the next phase of your life, which basically is an invitation to another set of challenges or another place of chaos. And in The Hobbit, there's basically a real door that Bilbo has to open to get to the next phase of his journey. And the book opens with a door. You remember Gandalf leaves the special words on Bilbo's door. And now in chapter 11, we find Bilbo once again sitting on a door and he's left with options. He can go back. He can sit forever, which doesn't seem practical. (laughs) No. Or he can go through the door, walk right into the dark, and the awaiting chaos. And that's not even metaphorical. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the struggle inside of him is expressed. I like it. It's expressed by uh, looking at the two sides of his family trees. And I've enjoyed this throughout the whole book. He keeps saying that he has his strong, adventurous side. The took side, and of course that came from his mother. And then there's the reserved, timid side, the Baggins side. And that, of course, came from his father. Well, of (laughs) course you would enjoy that detail. I know. I love the line. It's been more than once, but something tookish woke up inside of him. But anyway, back to the door of this lonely mountain. And let me read it. A door five feet high and three feet wide was outlined and slowly, without a swoon, swung inwards. It seemed as if darkness flowed out like a vapor from the hole in the mountainside, and deep darkness in which nothing could be seen lay before their eyes, a yawning mouth leading in and down. And of course, they all look into the hole, and and then they look at Bilbo, and then Thorin has these words of wisdom. Read what Thorin says. Now is the time for our esteemed Mr. Baggins, who has proved himself a good companion on our long road, and a hobbit full of course and resource, far exceeding his size, and if I may say so, possessed of good luck, far exceeding the usual allowance. (laughs) Now is the time for him to perform the service for which he was included in our company. Now is the time for him to earn his reward. And of course, I mean, I love Bilbo's response. He's not the same hobbit. No, he is having none of that. He says this. If you mean you think it is my job to go into the secret passage first, O Thorin, Thrain's son, Oakenshield, may your beard grow ever longer. And he gets cross. He says this. Say so at once and have done. I might refuse. 
I have got you out of two messes already, which were hardly in the original bargain, so that I am, I think, already owed some reward. But third time pays for all, as my father used to say, and somehow I don't think I shall refuse. Perhaps I have begun to trust my luck more than I used to in the old days. He meant last spring, (laughs) before he left his own house. But it seems centuries ago. But anyhow, I think I will go and have a peep at once and get it over. Now, who's coming with me? Well, before I move on, I want to ask about this. Uh, when he says, may your beard grow ever longer, is that an insult? Is that no, a curse? No, no. Is that a blessing? What yes. is that? Dwarves like their beards. Okay. I've never heard of an insult like that. So, uh, Bilbo has come into his own understanding of his own worth and is not intimidated uh, or actually not even flattered by Thorne's words. And he wants Thorne to own the fact that he's their equal, if not their superior. And in the words in the, uh, the world of Tolkien, dwarves are not heroes, <laughs> but calculating folk with a great idea of the value of money. Some are tricky and treacherous and pretty bad lots. Some are not, but are decent enough people like Thorne and company. If you don't expect too much. I love what an interesting turn of phrase or distinction he's making. And, Unfortunately, that's probably true for a lot of people. I don't know. I'm not going to say most people, but maybe. Most of us are not heroes. Most of us are not bad people, but most of us are just decent, possibly self-serving, but don't expect too much. That's (laughs) a little depressing, but Tolkien's got a little philosophy there. (laughs) What you should expect from people in the real world. Well, if you haven't seen that in Dwarves yet, uh, the end of the story really doesn't make Dwarves look all that great. No, it doesn't. But I guess we'll wait for next week to talk about that. Uh, that little line is just a foreshadowing. I think so, because it's in this part of the book that Bilbo most certainly is a hero, unlike the dwarves. He's selfless. He takes responsibility. He watches out for his friends when he doesn't have to. He fulfills his commitments, even when the other side doesn't really act in good faith all the time. That's things heroes do and of course just like every other hero he has to face the dragon alone (laughs) wow and in some sense there we have the ultimate life metaphor bilbo found a purpose in his comfortable existence and uh, life chose him for a moment of greatness and it's obvious from the beginning of the story that facing a dragon was not a lifelong aspiration Uh, But somehow this meaningful experience has manifested and Bilbo will be changed forever based on what happens from this point forward. And that is very much the human experience in a nutshell. Yes, and I want to read how Tolkien puts it. It was at this point that Bilbo stopped. Going on from there was the bravest thing he ever did. The tremendous things that happened afterward were as nothing compared to it. He fought the real battle in the tunnel alone before he ever saw the vast danger that lay in wait. At any rate, after a short halt, go on he did, and you can picture him coming to the end of the tunnel, an opening of much the same size and shape as the door above. Through it peeps the hobbit's little head. Before him lies the great bottommost cellar or dungeon hall of the ancient dwarves right up at the mountain's root. It is almost dark so that its vastness can only be dimly guessed. But rising from the near side of the rocky floor, 
there is a great glow, the glow of Smaug. There he lay, a vast red golden dragon, fast asleep. A thrumming came from his jaws and nostrils and whips of smoke, but his fires were low in slumber. Beneath him, under all his limbs, in his huge coiled tail, and about him on all sides, stretching away across the unseen floors, lay countless piles of precious things, gold wrought and unwrought, gems and jewels and silver red stained in the ruddy light. Small glay with wings folded like an immeasurable bat turned partly on one side so that the hobbit could see his underparts and his long pale belly crusted with gems and fragments of gold from his long line on his costly bed. Behind him where the walls were nearest could dimly be seen coats of mail and helms and axes and swords and spears hanging and there in rows stood great jars and vessels filled with wealth that could not be guessed. To say that Bilbo's breath was taken away is no description at all. There are no words left to express his staggerment, since men changed the language that they learned of elves in the days when all the world was wonderful. Bilbo had heard tell and sing of dragon hordes before, but the splendor, the lust, the glory of such treasure had never yet come home to him. His heart was filled and pierced with enchantment, and with the desire of dwarves he gazed motionless, almost counting the frightful guardian at the gold beyond price and count. He gazed for what seemed like an age before, drawn almost against his will, he stole from the shadow of the doorway across the floor to the nearest edge of the mound of treasure. Above him the sleeping dragon lay, a dire menace even in his sleep. He grasped a great two-handled cup, as heavy as he could, and cast one fearful eye upwards. Smaug stirred a wing, opened a claw, the rumble of his snoring changed its note. Then Bilbo fled. <laughs> <laughs> then he fled. Yeah, ran for his life. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for him. Anyway, uh, dragons are important in every culture. We can go back to the Egyptians, to the Chinese, to the uh, Indians, the Babylonian myths. All of them have dragons. And even Judeo-Christian culture uh, can claim a dragon if you consider that a snake is a form of a dragon. And uh, there's no single prototype for what a, a dragon means. There are a lot of differences. I mean, the the Chinese dragon is life-giving, but that's definitely not Smaug's case. No, I don't think it is. <laughs> uh, Persian dragons, by the way, are known to be creatures who hoard treasure, and they were slain by heroes. All right. And, uh, you know, what it means to face the dragon, like we see here in this story, is something we see in lots of stories. And it, it's usually um, something positive in the experience of facing a dragon is meant to benefit the one who does indeed face the dragon. <laughs> well, in this story, it's going to work out that way. Bilbo steals from Smaug, then runs away, and then he's going to engage. We don't have time to get in all this, but it's so cute. I love this part of the story. He engages, and he talks to Smaug, and he gets sassier and sassier. And again, we have these riddles again, that we like we saw with Gollum, but now on a bigger scale. Uh, what we see in Smaug uh, is another actually moral component to the story. We've, we've seen the, the virtue of mercy before. We've seen the virtue uh, of loyalty. But Smaug is going to personify a different, not virtue, but vice, because he is taken down, not by Bilbo, but by himself. Smaug is taken down because Smaug is greedy. Hmm. He is outraged when he figures out that somebody has taken something from him. And Tolkien, of course, slams rich people in the process. He says something about 
he lost his mind the way rich people do when they lose something they've never cared about before. (laughs) (laughs) But exactly in Smaug's case, he loses his mind. Bilbo and the dwarves kind of get exposed. They have to make a decision how to get away from Smaug. And unfortunately, in order to get away from Smaug, they have to lock themselves inside the mountain or they would have gotten killed uh, on the outside from Smaug. And let's kind of read that little bit of the excitement. And not a moment too soon, they had hardly gone any distance down the tunnel when a blow smote the side of the mountain like the crash of battering rams made of forest oaks and swung by giants. The rock boomed, the walls cracked, and stones fell from the roof on their heads. What would have happened if the door had still been open? I don't like to think. They fled further down the tunnel, glad to be still alive, while behind them, outside, they heard the roar and rumble of Smaug's fury. He was breaking rocks to pieces, smashing wall and cliff with the lashings of his huge tail, till their little lofty camping ground, the scorched grass, the thrush's stone, the snail-covered walls, the narrow ledge, and all disappeared in a jumble of smithereens and an avalanche of splintered stones fell over the cliff into the valley below. Smaug had left his lair in silent stealth, quietly soared into the air, and had floated heavy and slow in the dark like a monstrous crow down the wind towards the west of the mountain in the hopes of catching unawares something or somebody there and of spying the outlet to the passage which the thief had used. This was the outburst of his wrath when he could find nobody and see nothing, even where he guessed the outlet must actually be. And after he had let off his rage in this way, he felt better, and he thought in his heart that he would not be troubled again from that direction. In the meanwhile, he had further visions to take. Barrel rider, he snorted. Your feet came from the waterside, and up the water you came without a doubt. I don't know your smell, but if you are not one of those men of the lake, you had their help. They shall see me and remember who is the real king under the mountain. He rose in fire and went away south towards the running river. Oh, dear. And, of course, the dragon goes nuts. Spoiler here, people running around trying to escape. It looks like all will be lost But then a bird who can speak to humans, I mean, don't look here for a literal reality, (laughs) Uh, has overheard Bilbo describing Smaug's one little weak spot that he found when he was inside the mountain. So the bird tells another bird who whispers the secret into the ear of a noble human. The human with his very last arrow looks into the moonlight, sees the little hole. Smaug comes down. It's all very dramatic. Yes. It is dramatic and exciting, uh, and although that would seem like the end of the story, the most exciting part is yet to come. Imagine killing dragons. That's not, not the, even the highlight right. yet. <laughs> the next thing to come is a war, uh, which is what we'll talk about next week. A war will break out. It turns out that a mountain full of gold is something everybody's willing to fight about. Yeah, I think we probably should have expected that. <laughs> yes. I look forward to the riveting conclusion. Thanks for listening and for being with us this week. We always like to ask you to uh, text a favorite episode to a friend of yours and help us grow the podcast. And please be sure to check us out on all of our social media sites and on our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. And you can also sign up for our newsletter. Thanks for being with us. 
Peace out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.